Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Well, let's pick up with um, verse 16. Christ says, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me because I go to my father. And of course, what's he saying? Well, he's going to die. He's going to come back for a little while. And then he's going to go to the father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's saying. So they're trying to figure out what Christ is saying. They're talking among themselves. What does he mean? A little while you'll see me, a little while you won't. Well, we understand what he was saying, right? I'm going to die, so in a little while you won't see me, but then you're going to see me again, but then I'm going to go to my Father. All right, so you have the ascension in there. And Jesus knew they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned to joy um, he's trying to hint at them here what's going on um, you will weep and lament what's he talking about there his death right now what's the how's the world going to look at it Victory. Finally, she's got this guy to shut up for once. You know, they're going to look at it with victory. The disciples are going to look at it with sorrow, but their sorrow will be turned to joy. Why? Resurrection. All right. So, so what appears to be catastrophe is really not. And then he says here he uses a common illustration: a woman when she is labor has sorrow. Because her hours come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. When a woman is having a child, it's extremely painful. Um, but once the baby is born and once the child is there, she forgets about that. Some say, <laughs> some say that she does, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were a little bit hardier, you know. Shut that door. Yeah, they were a little hardier, you know. They deliver birth in the morning and they're out in the field in the afternoon. Um, but it, it was a common, you know, when we talk about that, the joy of a birth, the joy of a child being born. You know, in those days, they looked forward to the birth of children. And yeah, it was sorrowful and painful, but once the baby is born, there's great joy that a child is born. And he's saying, just like, just in that same way, I'm going to die. It's going to be extremely painful. It's going to be sorrowful for you, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. You will become joyful again. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. When you, when you, when I see you again, you will be joyous. Because I'm now. He didn't tell them, "Look, guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again." They weren't getting that, right? I mean, he'd been trying to tell them all along, but it's just been going over their heads. They've not got it. So he uses this figurative language to talk to them. 
And he says, and in that day, what, what day is that? Well, the day when their sorrow is turned to joy. You will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. What's he saying here? Until this point, what has been the disciples' contact with the Father? Christ, right? What's going to happen? Christ is going away. Right. So how are they going to connect to the Father now? But who are they going to talk to? God. The Father. Jesus Christ says up to this point, you've been approaching the Father through me. I've been your contact point. I'm going away. Now what are you going to do? You're going to ask the Father directly in my name. And what he's saying there is he's saying, um, until now you've asked nothing in my name. What he's trying to get at there, he's saying, you're not going to have to ask me to ask the Father. You can ask the Father directly. You don't need to go through me. So basically, you know, as a, as a point of fact, most of our prayers should be directed to who? Which one? The Father. Okay. Now, how do, on what basis can we pray to the Father? In Jesus' name. Through, because Jesus provided the way, uh, Romans says we have access to the Father. The, the Greek word there, um, and I forget what it is off the top of my head, but what it, what it referred to was a, an official introducer to the king. Now, in those days, you just didn't walk in and say, hi, king, what's up? Um, you'd have to go through someone who would introduce you to the king. And what Paul is using there is a word with, with Christ saying, Christ is one who brings us into the presence of the Father and introduces us to us to the Father. But we talk to the Father. Now, is it wrong to address Jesus in a prayer? No, not really. Is it wrong to address, to address the Spirit? No. But primarily, who are we to pray to? The Father. And Jesus is saying, until now, you've been speaking to me. I have been your contact point. You know, I've been telling you what the Father says. I've been the sort of the mediator between you and the Father. You've really not prayed to the Father, but the time is coming when you will pray to the Father in my name. You don't need to pray to me to go talk to the Father. You can approach him directly yourself. In his, in his name here, that's in his character. Yes, has to do with his character. Doesn't mean in Jesus' name, post stamp, you know. That, that's that's what we've turned it into in Jesus' name. And when you don't pray that, somebody says, ah, you didn't you didn't get to heaven. God, God ignored it. No, that's not what it means. It means to pray in accordance with all that Jesus says. If that's what Jesus would want, that's what the Father wants, right? Because Jesus and the Father want the same thing. Don't you think when you look at this in the context of the situation, too, it's really a radical change for them? Because as a Jew, they always went to the priest. And then there, the high priest went before God in the Holy of Holies. Now they were following Christ. Now all of a sudden, Christ is telling them they can approach God. But here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing that blows my mind. We approach God as who? Our that was That was radical. Yeah. No Jew would ever say that about God. To them, God was this distant being to be scared of. 
Christ, you know, this, this is the thing that's been, you know, is the more I meditate on it, it's the hardest for me to understand. I have direct access to talk to the creator of the universe as my father. Now that's that, that I'm not to approach him flippantly and carelessly, but he's my father. Bart, you're going to say, I'm sorry. The reason that was fixed in John 16, 24, if I remember right, became a new Christian. One of the first five memory verses that Diane gave me that book that you know, was assurance of answered prayer, John 16, 24. You know, that's what I identified with. Ask in my name. And ask and notice what it says here. This is this is interesting. Now it's one thing for Jesus to call God his father, right? We can we can understand that. But for me to call him my father? See, Jesus is this is interesting. Jesus is redefining the relationship between the disciples and the Father in this verse, in these chapters, right? I'm no longer going to call you slaves, for slaves do not know what the master is doing. I'm calling you friends. Do you know you're the friend of God? You ever think about that? Abraham was known as the friend of God. And that, that is just, I, I just, I can't fathom that. You know, I can't fathom, you know, you, you can think of God as being this, this, this holy God on a throne that you can't approach, you're terrified of, you, you can't, you're just scared to death of. And, and there's a component of that. But that same God is your father and your friend. Wow. And look at Revelation 22. What's happening? Jesus, it says, God himself will be among them and be their God. I'll be able to talk to God personally without Christ. Fellowship with him. And John 17 is going to bring that out. It's just. I mean, it's just it, it, it boggles the mind. And to the Jewish person, this was something that they just. Didn't comprehend. God, my father, that's blasphemous. That's so blasphemous. Plan of salvation in Christ Jesus that He can take a rank sinner that no matter how bad your life has been, you know, from the thief on the cross to the Lady of Samaria, and that work of salvation can transform you to that point where you do have access to the Father and you can say, Our Father. And what that work has done in us, as far as the plan of salvation, washing our sins away, it makes us acceptable to the Father. Jesus Christ restores the shattered relationship. Restores it. 
these things have I spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I come from God. You don't need to ask me to ask the Father. Ask the Father yourself. Why? Because the Father loves you like, the, like he loves me. And this is this is this concept is 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 captured by Paul in, in the concept of adoption. You know, we think of adoption as saving a poor orphan from a life in the orphanage, and you know that that's not what adoption is in the New Testament. Adoption in the New Testament is something of honor. In fact, it was often better to be an adopted son than a real one, because usually what happened is the a wealthy Let's say a wealthy Roman father had kids that were a bunch of bums. And the last thing he wanted to do is leave his inheritance to them. He would go find a son and adopt him and leave that son the inheritance. Even over his own kids, he had the right to do that. And in the Roman legal system, when you were adopted, it is though that everything, everything in your life was wiped clean. If you were a criminal, any crime you committed was expunged from the record. You started over again. There was no record of your past crime. It is though you came into being at the point of your adoption. You were given a new name. You were made part of a new family. It's though that previous you didn't exist at all. And what a wonderful picture it is, right? When you come to Christ, everything you did in the past, every crime, every sin has been expunged from your eternal record. You're a new creation, and God's given you, Bible says again, a new name in heaven. And we're made, as Paul says in Romans 8, a joint heir with Christ. What does that mean? A joint heir. That's a good legal term. What's a joint heir? Yeah, you both get the same inheritance. All right. It's not that you get half the estate and the other person gets half the estate, but you both get all the estate. <laughs> and, and what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is we get the same inheritance Christ gets. Now stop and think about that one for a little while. You inherit everything, every blessing that Christ has, you have. We're a joint heir with Christ. Wow. No lawyers in heaven. There's no private property. There's no, sorry, there's nothing to fight over, right? <laughs> what part of heaven do you inherit it? The whole thing. All of it. We all get it all. And God has a superabundance of everything that we need. Wow. And Christ is saying here, <coughs> Talk to the Father. You don't need me anymore to be your go-between. And why does the Father love you? Because you believe me. You believe that I come from the Father. That faith in me, the faith that you believe that I came from the Father, causes the Father to love you as much as he loves me. Wow. Jeez. Think about that. 
Think about the love of God for that. This is love, not that we loved him, but he first loved us. Wow. It's all of God. And, and, and if we, when, you really, when you really begin to, to grasp, even in, a, even in a minor way, this truth, it's mind-boggling. You can't really get it. I am a child of the creator of the universe. And someday I'm going to inherit everything. Everything. Hard to be depressed with that, right? The Father loves you. Why? Because you love me. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. I came from the Father into the world. I'm going to leave the world and go back to the Father. And the disciples said to him, See, now you're speaking plainly and using no figures of speech. So now Christ is telling them plainly what he's doing. I'm leaving. I'm going to leave you and go to the Father. Not in a little while you'll see me, and then you won't see me, and then you'll see me again. He's starting to say it pretty plainly. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered him, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, now has come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. You believe, you really believe, well, you know, you're going to be scattered. That's a pretty strong indictment. Well, when they made that profession, what were they doing? Blowing a lot of hot air, weren't they? Because they had no comprehension of what it is they were saying. See, that was Peter's problem, right? Oh, everybody will leave you. I'll stick it out. Yeah, right. You can't depend on your own power, your own strength. You can't do this. Christ said, yeah, you're, you're going to be scattered. And you'll leave me all by myself. You will abandon me, but I am not alone. Why? Because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I'm telling you all this stuff so that you can have peace. What kind of peace? What do you think he's talking about there? Yeah. So when everything is melting down around you, what as a believer can you do? It's okay. It's okay. And yet many times as believers, we're not a very good model of that, are we? And you can have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. The word there, I think it's the word flipsis. It means to be squeezed between two things. The world's going to squeeze you. It's going to be uncomfortable being in the world. But you know what? I've overcome the world. So in the end, who wins? God wins. Right? You can have peace. And I've told you these things so that you would have 
peace. We can have peace. And it says here in the world you have tribulation, but you know what? That's not the end. That's not the end because I've overcome the world. And then in verse or chapter 17, we have Christ's high priestly prayer. Jesus spoke these words, lived up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That your son also may glorify you. Again, what does it mean to glorify? Make to make known, draw attention to, exhibit, adorn. The hour has come. Implied in that is that Christ's death on the cross was not some accident. See, that's a, some of the screwball nuttiness that they come up with, the liberals do. You know, Jesus was sort of this nice little Jew walking around Palestine, teaching some nice fuzzies about God. And he got caught up into something. The next thing you know, he's hanging on a cross. A big catastrophe, an accident. Look. When was Christ's death planned? Before time began. Before time began. We call that the decree of God. That's a big theological term, the decree of God. Before time began, before anything existed, God decreed creation. He decreed redemption. I love that little tune. Yeah. We have these, uh, we all have a Blackberry at work, and uh, they have different, like, beeps on it. You can put, like, when you get, like, a, a high-priority email. So every once in a while, our team will get a high-priority email. You can hear, you know, the beeps going from one to the next as, as each of us gets the little page, and it goes off, and one's dinging, and one's ringing a bell, and one's playing a tune, and it's just... Sort of fun, but um, but uh, the, the thing to understand is that before before anything existed, God had mapped out the entire plan of redemption, including not only those who would be redeemed. Can't get around that, but also that Christ would be the Savior. First Peter says he was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The word for foreordained means to mark out beforehand. Christ's death was not an oh by the way from God. It was not that Adam fell and God says nuts. Now what do we do? We got to figure something out real quick here. No, it was all part of the plan. It was all part of the decree of God. And Christ is saying the time has come for this to work. God had a plan. And it didn't happen too soon. It didn't happen too late. It happened at exactly the right time. The hour has come. Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. That I may show the world what you're like. How did the death of Christ glorify God? It was, it was 
and exhibited God's grace and also exhibited God's justice and wrath and hatred of sin. All of that. Sometimes we think of glorify as just the positive aspects of God. But it's also the harshness and the severity of God. The people in, in, that are in the lake of fire for eternity glorify God in displaying his justice. And us in heaven glorify God in displaying his grace. And you're right. Both components exist. Both of them exist. I don't want to say, I want to be in the glorified of heaven. <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah. Then in verse 2, he says, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now look, all right. If you're not a Calvinist yet, read the verse. <laughs> read the verse. Where do where does your will fit into that verse? Where do you see your choice in that verse? Anybody see your choice in that verse? It's not there, is it? No. It has nothing to do. The emphasis in this verse has nothing to do with your personal choice. What does it have to do with? You've given him authority over all flesh that he would give eternal life to all those that you have given him. It's all, this is between God and the Son, and you're not you. Now, this is the divine perspective. Understand that. This is the divine perspective. Now, if you are one that the Father has given the Son, what are you going to do? You will believe. But the reason you believe is because God the Father gave you to Christ. And Christ is saying, you've given me authority over flesh that I would give eternal life to all that you have given me. And this, and what is this eternal life? What is eternal life? What are we talking about here? That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus whom you have sent. I'm putting together, I'm working on a, on a course right now for open door on um, theology, proper, the doctrine of God. And the first lesson we're going to look at, why should we study God? And one of the answers is right here. Why should you study God? Because that's what eternal life is all about. Right? That you may know God. Now understand what Christ is saying here. It's not that you may know about God. That's one of the difficulties. Usually when you talk about theology, proper people say, well, you know, we're going to study the attributes of God. You know, deity, aseity, um, omniscience, omnipresence, wrath, love, all that stuff. That's, that's the about God business. Is that important? Sure it is. But is that knowing God? No. What does it mean to know God? Relationship. To know him as a person. To know him as a person. That's what is life eternal. Not the knowledge of God, but knowledge of him as a person. That they may know you 
and the son whom you sent. Right. To the Hebrew, wisdom was not what you had in your head, it was how you lived. It was the way you lived your life. The the goal, folks, our, our eternal goal is going to be to know the Father. We're going to spend all of eternity getting to know the Father as a person. Not as some abstract being, not to rattle off all of his attributes, but to know him as a person. And, and, and John picks this up in John chapter 2, verse 12. He talks about little children. Uh, you know, I write to you little children because you, you know that your sins are forgiven. And then he says, I write to you little children because you know the Father. What do little kids know? They know who Dad is. Christian kids. What do Christian children know? They know that their sins are forgiven and they know God. They know that God is there. They know who the Father is. And then he says, I write to you young men because you're strong. The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. What do the spiritual young men know? They know the word of God. They're able to use it. They've overcome the evil one. They're able to use it to overcome sin in their life. But then he says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. What do the spiritual fathers know? God. They know God. And that's our goal in life is to know him. And Christ says, I'm praying for them because what is eternal life? What is What makes eternal life eternal life? A knowledge of God. The only true God. How many gods are there? One. And Isaiah, God says, um, if there's other gods, I don't know about any because I'm the only one. I'd like to know who they are. There aren't any others. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. You've just been eternity getting to know the Father and the Son. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. The time is coming for me to come back. Um, I did what I was sent to do. I accomplished the purpose. Christ didn't, you know, he didn't say, oh, you know, I have to wrap up these loose ends. <laughs> there weren't any loose ends to wrap up. It was time. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the world existed, before the cosmos existed, before existence existed, God and Christ were there face to face. Prostan Theon, it's called face to face. Christ is not a created being, in spite of what the Jehovah Witnesses say. And he was not a procreated being, like the Mormons would tell you. Rather, he is God himself. And before anything existed, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed in perfect union and community with each other. And Christ said, I'm longing to come back and enjoy 
that face-to-face -face fellowship with you that I had before time began. And, and this hints at what we call the kenosis of Christ, the self-emptying. You know, Philippians 2 says he emptied himself. And people say, well, you know, theologians have argued through the centuries, well, what does it mean he emptied himself? Did he stop being God? Well, that'd be kind of tough to do, right? Can God stop being God? No. <laughs> so Christ was fully God. He couldn't stop being God. Well, then how did he empty himself? He laid aside his face-to-face -face communion with the Father to become flesh, a man. And for 33 or so odd years, he walked and talked and lived with us. And what's he now looking forward to doing? Going back to the relationship with the Father. And we're not going to understand even in a small way, what Christ gave up until we get to heaven. We're not going to understand that. You know, I often thought, you know, five minutes into heaven, if God came up and said, Alan, we made a mistake, it's not your time yet, we're going to send you back, I'd say, no, I'm staying. I don't want to go back and teach that moody class and face work and, no, I'm staying. And the Cleveland winners, I'm going to stay here, you know. The heaven is going to be so wonderful. It's like we'd never want to leave. And yet Christ voluntarily of his own free will set aside all of that to become down here to this sin infested world. And he's looking now to going back to the Father. We can only imagine too what it would be like to be completely holy. Right. Blameless. And then leave a holy existence and come into a sinful world and actually become the very thing that repulsed you as God. It'd be somewhat like us standing on the edge of a sewer, vile sewer, and jumping in. You want to do that? No. If that's what he did. He gave up his face-to-face -face communion with the Father. Took upon himself the limitations of humanity to become one of us. And why did he do that? So he could die. It's all part of the plan. And stop and think about it. If God could have accomplished redemption any other way, would he have done it? Yeah. I mean, stop and think about it. We're going to sit around in heaven completely awestruck with the realization that Christ died for us. I mean, he wanted to do it another way, too. But there wasn't any other way. Would have, no other way would have been consistent with his character. Mm -mm. Sin has irretrievably made us look to ourselves to exalt ourselves. What what would be the greatest 
possible sacrifice in the universe. The, the, the greatest self-sacrificial act in the universe. What could that have been? For God to die. <laughs> you couldn't get any higher than that. And that was that's what was required for us to be brought face to face with our vileness and to see God for who he is. He died for me. It even was the, uh, the original sin of Adam and Eve. Why it had to be taken. Initially, the animals mm -hmm. were skins to be for the world. If you look at our very existence on this earth, we live constantly because something gives us it, its life so that we can live. Mm -hmm. You know, that hamburger, that was a cow one time. You know. That tossed salad, it was alive in the ground, living at one time. In order for you to live, it had to sacrifice itself. And that, when I look at that too, it amazes me when you think about the sacrifice of Christ. God did all of that. Not only planned it, but intended to do it, but it pleased him to do it. To restore that relationship that he once had with Adam and Eve, with us. And sometimes it, it amazes me that God would think it that important and that valuable of a relationship to go to that great expense to bring it back into existence. And because he did that, we are going to be able to have a depth of relationship with him in eternity that the angels only can look at with confusion. From my perspective, I think he got a raw deal. <laughs> you know, because I don't feel worthy of it. And all God can say to that point is, you've got it. Because you're not worthy. You don't deserve anything. Yeah, you don't. And that's going to make us appreciate and his love all the more and be all that more awestruck that's what I think. by it. That's what I, I can I see that right here. Because we, you know, scripture you come out of First Peter that says Christ was foreordained. He was already foreordained. I, I believe that. Um, I mean, what it was before the fall, he had already had it planned. It was planned before the universe even existed. Yes, yeah, so I think it was to show that really show us his love. Before Genesis 1 1. How can God demonstrate his character to a created universe? You know, he's got to display all his attributes. That required the existence of sin. You know, to display what he was like. And and I you know, I I, I just you know, when I think about this, my brain stops. I don't know how to approach it. I don't know how to think about it. I can just sort of sit there with my jaw hanging down, just trying to to comprehend it in, in, even in a small way, and that even doesn't work. The greatness of God. And when you start getting into that, this whole idea of pride and, and you know, God owing you something and you being a wonderful Christian and all that, that just sort of like drains real fast. 
and you, and you, you know, this pharisaical idea that the Pharisees had that God owed them heaven and owed them eternal life. You know, you start seeing that you don't know, you don't, God doesn't owe you anything but hell. And that just makes you appreciate it all the more. And it brings all the more glory to him. In verse 6, Christ says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. <laughs> I want you to, when you read this, ask yourself, where is the disciples' choice in this? And what is the answer? It's not there. <laughs> Because he goes from the those you have given me in, in, in verse in verse two and three. That's the general. That's all of us. Now he's keying in specifically the disciples, the men that you gave me. They're yours. They were yours to start out with, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. These are the loser crowd. What do you mean they kept your word? Well. In our own frailty, in their own flawed way, they believed who he was. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, they have received them, and they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. They believed who Jesus was. They believed the Father. And why is it that they believe? Well, because they were given to Christ by the Father. This is one of those mysteries you just got to take take it. It almost seems in contrast to chapter 16, verse 32. And they made, you know, after the statement of faith, he says, you know, the hour's coming when you're going to be scattered. So, that, you know, none of us are perfect in our... But they were not finally scattered. That's the point. And that's one of the differences. And, you know, I know from your tradition, your previous life, a lot of the confusion that, that they've had when it comes to, like, the, the, um, the security of salvation and things is to understand that can a Christian fall into sin? Yes. But can a Christian fully and finally walk away? No, not a true one. A false one can. And if someone does do that, it's not evidence that they lost it. It's evidence they never had it. Why? Because my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And if you understand Romans chapter 8, verse 29, what does it say? If God knew you in eternity past, God did not ordain. In eternity past, God did not ordain your salvation. He ordained your glorification. Salvation is one of the steps along the way. You can't lose it. There's nothing you can do to sabotage the plan of God. Nothing. And look what it says in verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me for their years. <laughs> okay, how many times does he have to tell you this before you get it? 
You gave them to me. They're yours. You gave them to me. And I'm praying for them. Now you have to ask, well, why in the world are you praying for them? Because you know they're, gonna, they're given to you. They're secure. They're going to be in eternity. What are you praying for? You ever think about that? That's the, you know, some people say, well, why do I pray? I mean, God's going to do what he's going to do whether I pray or not. So why pray? Well, the answer is it brings you in line with God's plan, doesn't it? And all mine are yours and yours are mine. I'm glorified in them. Christ is praying for those whom the Father gave him. And remember earlier on where, where Peter says, everybody may deny you, and one of the other Gospels, everyone else is going to deny you, but I'll stay there. And Christ says, well, I'm going to pray for you that your faith fail not. I'll pray for you, <laughs> Peter, that your faith won't fail. Wow. This is Christ praying for his disciples. You know, you look at that too from God's perspective. God praying the prayer. It's definitely going to be answered. And it's definitely according to his will, right? Yes. So it's the perfect prayer. Yeah. This is one prayer that's definitely going to be answered. So it actually points to the sovereignty of God. Yes. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them... Keep through your name those you have given me, that they may be one as we are. What is Christ saying? Christ saying, look, Father, you gave these people to me. I've kept them in the world, but I'm leaving the world. So you keep them. What do you think it means when he says keep them? Protect them, right? Now, uh... You, th you think somebody's lost in this process? No. That the Father forgets? You know, that Christ gives the Father a million people and the Father loses a hundred thousand of them somewhere along the way? No. No. Father, keep them. I've kept them, you keep them. And the word for keep there means to guard, to, to keep, to treasure. He's going to keep you. And see, here's the great thing. Here, here's the thing. Here, here's the thing to understand. The security of salvation is not wrapped up in your ability to hang on. Rather, it's wrapped up in God's ability to hang on. You, you see the difference? And the, the error that, that, that a lot of religious traditions fall into when they think you can lose your salvation is they're looking at from the man-centered viewpoint that I've got to hang on to God and if I let go I'm lost. Well you know what? <laughs> Nobody gets to heaven. We're all doomed. Because you can't hang on. What's the Bible say? God hangs on. I'm hanging on to you. Now look, if you got the Father hanging on to you, you got the Son hanging on to you, you got the Holy Spirit who is hanging on to you. What's going to happen? You're all right. You're all right. And that's what Paul says in the end of Romans 8. Who's going to bring anything to the charge of God's elect? Anybody? What's the idea? The idea there is who's going to be able to successfully bring 
a sticking accusation against God's elect such that God will not glorify them. Anybody bring a charge? Well, let's see, who could bring a charge? Um, uh, Christ could. Nah, he's not going to do that because he died for you, right? Father, nope, Father can't do that because he's justified you. Well, that just doesn't leave anything except, you know, principalities, powers, well, they're not going to be able to do anything. Paul's argument, read, read it very carefully, Paul's argument is the only two beings in the universe that could bring an accusation against you that would stick, that would cause God to discard you would be God himself and Christ. And neither one of them are going to do it. So guess what? Yeah, that's what it says. If God is for you, he can be against you. He that delivered his own son for us all shall not freely. If God did, and that's what Paul is saying, if God did the tougher thing, delivering up his son for you, he can do the little thing like keep you. That's the easy part. The hard part was to give up Christ. The easy part is keeping you. You can't. You can't. You can't. You can't jump out of God's hand. If you're one of the elect, nothing you do will derail your eternal glorification. Nothing you do. You can't jump out. You can't lose it. You can't out the grace of God. And why is that? Well, God knew what you were going to do, didn't he? You ever think about that? When you became a Christian, what did God know about you? Well, he knew all of your sins. What 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 include what's included in all those sins? Past, present, future. God knew every time you would fail. God knew every time you would blow it. He knew every time you would fall on your face, and he still saved you. Therefore, is there anything you can do that God did not already know you were going to do? No. He still saved you. Therefore, you cannot outsend God. You're not going to commit a sin that God said, oh, I didn't see that one coming. I didn't think he'd do that. You see that boy not the relationship of Christ and his disciples. He knew ahead of time. No. Yep. He still chose. He still chose him. He knew Peter had a big mouth. He knew John and James had temper problems. He knew Judas was going to deny him. He knew Thomas, poor old Downing Thomas, you know, never did believe anything. And yet he took them all. He, he, he. He took the riffraff. Folks, there's nothing you can do to thwart God's eternal. Nothing you can do. And Christ here is saying, between him and the Father hanging on to you, nobody gets lost. Nobody gets dropped. You never have the... Trinitarian comment of Christ saying, well, I thought you had him. The Father says, well, no, I thought you had him. Where is he? No, it doesn't happen that way. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be filled. The ones you gave me, I've kept them all, except the one who wasn't supposed to be kept, which is who? The son of perdition. Now again, what do you see throughout here? You see Christ in the talking father saying, you gave them to me, I kept them. I'm giving them back to you to keep them. And by the way, you know, Father, that I have kept them. While I was here in the world, I kept them in your word. 
I protected them. Look, this is God. God is on your side. You realize that. God is for you. And what's it say in Romans? If God is for you, who can be against you? He that delivered not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not by him freely give us all things? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or anything else I forgot about, is going to keep you from... You can't. It will not separate you from God. Nothing can separate you from God. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I've given them your words, Father. I've taught them what you told me to teach them. I've, I've kept them. And I'm leaving the world now. And they're going to be hated by the world, just like I am. The world's going to despise them. They're going to want to kill them. In fact, all of the 11 disciples died martyrs' death except possibly John. The world will hate them. And it's because I am not of the world. What is the world here? The system, the the the, the values, the you know this world. Uh, you know, I it, it's interesting. I, I still I love watching CSI. I just that's a cool show. I just you know, but but I look at that and I see you know they always have you know people getting murdered by other people for the stupidest reasons. And I look at this and I, I'm, I'm reminded again and again. I don't even think I don't even think like that. And why is it? Well, I'm not of the world. I don't value it. And I remember watching a CSI Miami one last night about a wealthy family that had two nannies or whatever, and one of them was murdered and the whole story behind that. And you know, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I wouldn't trade places with that wealthy man for anything. He had all kinds of money, bought a yacht, you know, had wealth and everything, and you know, and an emptiness that could never be filled. You know, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I don't value that. I don't value the, you know, like I think uh, some men of God have said, you know, you know, being in the world is like a boat in water. You know, it's okay if the boat's in the water. It's bad if the water's in the boat. It's okay for you to be in the world, but the problem is when the world gets into you, now you've got problems. And Christ is saying they're not of the world. They don't belong. They don't think like the world. They don't have the values of the world because they're not of this world. Understand, we do not belong to this world system. We don't belong. We're oddballs. We're different. We're weirdos. We don't fit in. We're not supposed to fit in. And if you start feeling really comfortable in this world, you better go back and say, am I a real Christian? Because Romans 8 says, he that is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It's one or the other. No. And I do not pray, 15, that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of the world, but what, what, what that you would do what? Deliver them from the evil one. Who's that? Satan. Satan. 
deliver them from evil. Will God deliver you from evil? Ultimately, he will, won't he? Yeah. Now, you might get clawed once in a while by this Satan as a roaring lion, but you'll never be overcome by him. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. See, this is the promise of God. Those who are true believers will not be overcome by the world. Why? Because God is keeping you. You're not keeping yourself. You're not. And the error that, that those who fall into want to believe you can use your salvation, they're seeing that, well, it's me. I'm hanging on. I'm keeping on. I got to hold on. I got to grab. If I do something wrong, I've lost it. It's focused on them. And from that perspective, no one would ever be saved because you could never hang on tight enough. The Bible teaches that God hangs on to you. And because God is hanging on to you, that enables you hang on to him but you hang on to him because he's hanging on to you it's God who's in this they are not of the world even as I am not of the world sanctify them by your truth your word is truth make them holy sanctify them means to make holy make them holy by truth what is truth your word is truth I mean, I mean, if you really grasp this concept, if you want truth in life, where are you going to go? Is there any place else you're going to go? No. I get tired of the Christian psychologists, so-called Christian psychologists, who say, well, you know, all truth is God's truth, and we can find truth all over the place. Now, wait a minute. How do you know what some psychological mumbo-jumbo is true or not? How do you know if something... If, if some psychologist come here and gave you some stuff, how would you know if it's true or not? All right. It would, it would compare to the word of God, right? If a sociologist came in here and gave you some mumbo jumbo, how would you know if it's true or not? Same test. So do you need them? No, you don't need them. You don't need the psychologist. You don't need the sociologist. You don't need all of that. What do you need? You need this. Bag that. Because when they're right, they agree with this. When they're wrong, they don't agree with this. If they're wrong, if they don't agree with this, you don't want to know what they say anyways, right? You don't need to integrate psychology and Christianity. You just need this. The root cause of our problem is sin. Sin. All of our You don't need psychology. You don't need that. And there's not sources of truth that, and, and we're talking about truth here, we're talking about truth in the moral spiritual sense there's no sources of truth outside of this this is it this is all that there is Freud did not come up with something that God forgot to tell you about and neither did Carl Rogers and and Carl Jung and all these other guys they didn't come up with truth that God failed to tell you they didn't in fact most of them hated God the last thing they wanted to do was Bring God into the equation. Good night. Don't want to acknowledge him. You don't need that. You want to know what truth is? You want to know spiritual truth? You want to know what God wants you to know? He's told you. And this is where it's at. And it's not anywhere else. And it says, thy word is truth. He's not talking about some prophecy and revelation you get from some guy on TV. And I remember it's interesting. Um, 
when I was first met the Mormon family I was talking about, they um they asked me, Well, you know, who's your prophet? Who's your prophet? I have the Bible. I don't need a prophet. Oh, you need to follow a prophet. You know, we have a prophet. You know, their prophet is the first president of the Mormon church. You know, I forget who the guy's last. No, he, he started it. He, he was the second one. It's Hinckley, I think, or was it Hinckley? You know, they got a prophet. You know, that, that's their authority. It's the prophet. That's the one God's speaking through. We go to him for the truth. What's Kari saying here? You don't go to a prophet. Where do you go? To the book. Here's the book. Here. Here's the truth. Yeah, macaron. <laughs> no. You know, one of my, uh, another Moody instructor once said something that's kind of stuck with me. He said, the Bible doesn't answer every question. It answers every question worth asking. Mm-hmm. It does. And that, that, that's something. It's not going to tell you how to build a nuclear bomb. That's not the purpose of it. All right. But when it comes to, to 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 meaning of life issues, here's where you get, and this is the only place you're going to get it. You're not going to get it anywhere else. You're not going to figure it out on your own. You're going to get it from here. You sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself that they almost also may be sanctified by the truth. Father, just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. Sanctify them. Make them holy through your truth. The word of God is the truth. So as a believer, our primary focus should be understanding this book. This is the only source of truth that we have. There isn't any other. I do not pray for these alone. Who's the these here? Well, the 11, right? But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. Here's Christ praying for you and me. I'm not only praying for these 11 guys, Father. I'm praying for everyone who believes in me through their word. Through the gospel that comes through the preaching of the, of the 11 here. And their disciples and their disciples and their disciples. I'm praying for all of them. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. The unity of the believer. This is the universal body of Christ, that we would be one. One in purpose, one in, in goals, one in mind, one in heart. This is the unity that Christ is talking about. But listen to me. Let me, let me, let me note, note the connection here. What comes before the unity? Truth. Don't split it apart. See, that's what the problem is with these people that want to get in a big group hug with everybody who says they're, they love Jesus. They divorce the truth from the unity. You can't divorce truth from unity. You can't do that. Christ is not saying here they all may be one regardless of the truth. He started out that they may know the truth and that truth will cause them to believe that they all may be one in what? The truth. The context of the oneness here is the truth that they all believe, which is the word of God. It's not that you just say, I love Jesus. Oh, you're in too. 
The cults say that. The New Age people love Jesus, but they love themselves too. It's all centered around the truth. That's the context. And the glory which you have given, gave me, I have given them, that they may one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Christ is, think, what is Christ doing here? What's he including us in? The Trinity. In that relationship. That, is that relationship. relationship. Between God and himself. Or the Father and himself. He's not, Christ is not here saying, okay, Father, you know, I want to come back with you and, you know, we'll, we'll hang out together, but we'll have these other, you know, believers, you know, buzzing around heaven, but, you know, I'm, we're hanging out. He's not doing that. He's bringing us right into, in a sense, the Trinity. I mean, we're not made little gods. Forget that heresy. But but Christ, there's no jealousy there. Christ is bringing us right in, almost on equal terms. Wow. It's kind of like wow. A friend, you know, like a childhood friend where you. You go to his house, and his dad's this uh, wealthy guy, and he's got all kinds of neat stuff. And we're allowed in the playroom with the, the other kid, but only in this situation, we're allowed in as children also of that same dad. Yeah. Instead of visitors coming in with the son. This blows your mind. If it doesn't blow your mind, you don't know what's going on. I mean, this is just, as S.M. Lockwood says, if if you're not blessed, your clapper's broke. If your bell's not rung, your clapper's broke. And if you're not on fire, your wood's wet. You know, I mean, there, this here, this, I can't fathom. I, I can't fathom. I am made part of the community of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and me. Wow. Wow. We're not just occupants of heaven, folks. We're joint heirs of heaven. Wow. And I like I like your analogy. It's not like we're allowed to play with the toys as long as the sun there. We have full access. As, as one of his own. Wow. And what's what's the this unity that, that is here in the truth, what's that going to tell the world? That we're part of family. It's going to set us apart from the world. That's better than winning the lottery, you know that. Which should it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So really, when the world begins to identify you as one of those, that's a good thing. Really a that's a good thing. That's not something to sue them over. No. By joining the Christian Anti-Defamation League. 
Thank you for the compliment. Yeah. <laughs> Look what it says in verse 24. Father, I desire they also whom you gave me. What's, how, go home and count the number of times Christ has talked about those whom you gave me in this passage. Every time he turns around, he says, those you gave me, I want them to be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Father, I want them to be with me. You know why you go to heaven? You don't go to heaven because of you know, your own benefit. You go there because that's where Christ wants you to be with him. He wants you to be with him, and where is he in heaven? So I guess you got to be there too. That's why we inherit heaven, to be with him. It's all about him. Folks, salvation is all about God's benefit, not yours. It's not what you get out of it that counts. It's what God gets. God did not save you for your benefit. He gave, saved you for his benefit. He didn't save you to make your life fulfilled and you happy and all of this stuff. He saved you to bring glory to himself. And when he brings glory to himself, all this happiness stuff, that's a side benefit. But that's not the purpose of salvation. And Christ wants us to be with him because you loved me before what? The foundation of the world. Before time began, you loved me. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have, have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Father, I'm declaring this so that the same love you gave me, you'll give them. And to me, one of the greatest statements of unity I see when it talks about this in heaven is at the end of Revelation. Which, this, you know, it sometimes when you read through the Bible, you just zip through some of this stuff and you don't really, it, you miss it. Verse 17, Revelation 22. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. What does that imply about the spirit and the bride? They're inviting you to what? To heaven. The spirit and the bride are inviting you to heaven. That means that relationally, it's their home. The readers of the book. I would never go over to your house and if someone is leaving, say, now y'all come back. It's not my house. But if it were my house, wow. The spirit and the bride say, come. Unity. Oneness with Christ. Yeah. We are the bride of Christ. This is our home. We're inviting, we are inviting the believer or the reader of Revelation. Get your head around this. In the future, we will invite the readers of Revelation home with us. Wow.
Well, I was asked to get out of here by nine, so we've got one minute for y'all to get out of here. So let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this day and for this time in your word. And we are astounded, amazed. Father, we're at a loss for words and a loss for thoughts. On the wonder of being made part of your family. We don't get that. It'd be good enough to just get to heaven. But we're made a co-heir. We're given everything. And it's even more humbling, Father, when we realize that it's not because of our own intellect and our own choice. It is not of the the will of him that runs, or of him who wills, but it is your will, Father. You've given us to Christ. He's kept us. You're keeping us. And someday, Father, we will be able to stand in your presence and enjoy relationship with you forever. Thank you. All we can do is say thank you. And thank you for this day that we've studied. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.